Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello, and thanks so much for being with me here on Tuesday, September 24th. Got a good show lined up today. In about 10 minutes, I'll be speaking with Kamloops South MLA Tom's Todd Stone as he takes on the new role of housing critic for the BC Liberals. That will come in addition to his role as municipal affairs critic, so he will be on around 9.20. In the back half of the show, I have the head of the BC Truckers Association on to discuss new rules that are coming into effect this winter for truck drivers. Drivers will now be fined $196 for not carrying chains and when, when and where required and $598 for not installing chains during mandatory chain-ups. So I'll be getting Dave Earl's reaction to those adjustments at around 9.35. And then to end things off, I'm going to be talking about snakes. I have Carl Larson on from the TRU Natural Resources Department with about two weeks left before snakes are set to hibernate for the winter. So we'll be chatting more about that at around 9.50. But to begin today's show, I'm talking with the chair of the local school board, Kathleen Carpuck, and she joins me now in studio. Kathleen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, you had a board meeting last night in Sun Peaks. Um, I guess before we get too much into exactly sort of the whole agenda, I guess talking about Parkrest, um, there was an update provided, I believe, last night. Um, so just in, in response to the relocation efforts for Parkrest and as well as the Trek students, um, just how are things going right now in terms of that relocation to George Hilliard and, and just sort of what's the process been like over the last three weeks? So uh, the Parkcrest students are at George Hilliard. Um, we do have two kindergarten classes that are sharing the library right now. They're waiting for us to move some portables in and we're hoping to have that happen sooner than later. Um, we've had an absolutely wonderful outpouring of support from the community that has allowed those teachers to replace much of what was lost uh, in terms of their supplies. Um, that the classrooms are outfitted beautifully right now um, and just a tremendous amount of support around the district for that. Our um, maintenance crews have performed minor miracles in terms of getting everything ready for our track students in terms of doing some very quick renovations at NORCAM so that those students have a safe uh, separate space from the school population. They have their own entrance, they have their own lounge. We've uh, built some offices, we've divided some classrooms so they have a space. Uh, we're currently looking at the um, space at Happy Vale and determining what we need to do there in order to make it ready for the Trek students to move back into having their own school together as a group. And we're hoping that that's going to go as quickly as possible, but we have to order portables and that's going to be our biggest sort of delay on that. Mm -hmm. uh, the great news was that all of the programs that have been displaced, uh, so Big Little Science Center and Link and the daycares have all found homes. So we're very, very happy about that. Yeah, so I guess we, it's been almost three weeks now since the fire itself broke out. And obviously there was a lot of planning and a lot of realignment that had to go into place. I mean, uh, you mentioned most of the things that have been displaced or will be displaced have found new homes. I guess, is there any um, you know loose ends left to tie up or, or is kind of all the plans at least in place moving forward at this point? The plans are in place moving forward. Uh, there may be hiccups, but we'll deal with those as they come along. But right now, we're fairly confident that things are moving in the right direction. Perfect. Uh, anything else to uh, update people on in terms of Parkcrest situation as it stands right now? 
Uh, just that the actual location at Parkcrest is still in the hands of the insurance adjusters and uh, once they turn that over to us then we'll be proceeding with demolition and then hopefully soon after that we'll be moving on to rebuilding. Yeah, well, that'll be an ongoing story for another day. Um, so looking more at what happened last night during your board meeting in, in Sun Peaks, uh, financial statements were discussed. Um, I guess just can you tell me a little bit about what uh, was presented to you guys? I understand you got some good news. So we had our financial statements and we approved those last night. Um, first thing was that uh, the auditors had absolutely no concerns about how we're running the district financially. They gave us a clean audit opinion, so that was nice to hear. Um, Revenues up slightly uh, over last year. Uh, part of that is because we had an additional 182 FTE students, and part of that was an increase in the per student amount that we got. So we had an increase of about um, seven and a quarter million dollars in revenue. So our total operating budget for 2018 19 was $152 million and change. So with a $7 million increase, I mean, maybe you can't say yet or you haven't decided yet exactly what you'd be able to do with those funds moving forward, because obviously you can do more than you would have in the past with an additional $7 million, I would expect. So those are funds from last year. Those are last year's numbers. Mm -hmm. Those aren't this, this year's mm -hmm. numbers. And the majority of that went into wages and benefits and salaries. Okay. So that's where most of that goes when you have an additional 182 students, then you hire additional teachers, and that's where a lot of that went. Um, another thing that uh, we discussed uh, is we did have a small surplus of $1.5 million, which is basically 1% of our budget. When you think about how many different people, how many different programs and different line items for us to actually spend everything within 1% is pretty amazing. Awesome. Um, and uh, moving on, I guess, to the District Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity Annual Report. Uh, this was a 30-page report that covers quite a bit of ground, so I wrote a couple of the key action points down just to sort of highlight a few things. Um, one was um, introduce the uh, prevention program to grade 9 students at three pilot schools. Um, so, I mean, what is, what is the prevention program? I mean, it's talking a little bit about substance use and keeping kids out of, um, you know, doing drugs, if you will. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about this program? Obviously, it's something that's important to a lot of people given the opioid epidemic that we are currently involved in. Uh, so the prevention program has uh, been piloted in other districts. has been quite successful in reducing rates of smoking and vaping, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. And what it is is allowing students to realize or to examine their own personality traits so that they have an idea of whether or not they may or may not be susceptible to some of these things and to then to give them uh, concrete tools so that they can avoid those. Okay, um, and, and when we're talking about three pilot schools, do you know where those are yet at this point? I don't have that information. Okay, fair enough. We'll figure it out as we move along. Um, obviously, uh, when you brought up vaping as part of that conversation there, and that was another one of the action plans, obviously a hot topic when it comes to young people right now. Um, so you're looking to develop a multi-agency plan to reduce student vaping across the district. I mean, do you, do you have any idea how big of an issue this is right now at schools in, in the Kamloops area? It's a very large issue and we don't have hard data on it yet. That's something that we're going to be looking at trying to collect. Um, 
we have a working group that we've started and we're basically going to try and bring in all the different agency partners to work on this. Vaping has been shown to uh, be a gateway to nicotine addiction, which then uh, leaves students susceptible to other addictions as well. And very often teens don't know that there's nicotine in the vape that they're using. It's not well advertised. Unfortunately, um, stores are able to sell vape products. They don't have the same types of restrictions that they are for cigarettes. And they've been marketed specifically to young adults, young teens with the flavorings. And it did, it's a big concern for us because students are finding that they have to go and take another hit off their vape. And so they have to leave the school. They have to leave their class to get that hit. And they're interrupting their education as a result. Uh, here with SD73 board chair Kathleen Carbuck. I mean... What, what is the conversation like in schools? I mean, when you were talking about vaping yesterday, I guess, was there a lot of discussion about, you know, the current situation we're seeing in the States where, you know, uh, people are dying really as a result of, of some vape use? I mean, it seems minor in comparison to talking about cigarettes, but it's obviously still an issue and, and something that keeps coming up, at least from a media perspective, I guess. So, you know, what, what is there a big fear among the board about people getting involved in this t uh, type of behavior and, and just what it is doing to, to impact their education as well? So this has been on the board's radar for a number of years. Uh, in fact, we did policy around this, uh, I think, three years ago when vaping first started. And the concern has always been that uh, people are inhaling a heated gas into their lungs. And that's just not healthy. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, there's still a lot to learn about what's going on with vaping. I think that's one of the the big points is we don't really know exactly what the effects are. Um, so a couple other things that were on that uh, equity plan, uh, develop and implement a formal district program for middle and secondary school transitions for Aboriginal youth. Uh, this feels like something that has likely probably been in place for a while in some form, but whether it was a formal program or not, I guess, what are you guys looking to change or enhance at this time when it comes to, you know, that transition for Aboriginal kids from middle to secondary school? What we're talking about is more wraparound supports. So having older students mentor incoming students, um, having some of our Aboriginal education workers there, making sure that those kids are really comfortable when they're moving from one school to, a, to the next. There's a history, a long history, of uh, abuse within the school system through residential schools. It's generational, and that's something that we have to work on breaking down and making students very comfortable that they are safe. And not only students, but those family members who've had a bad history with schools also have to feel comfortable. Yeah, and I would assume that would probably have a huge impact on the success level, too, moving forward. If, if you feel more comfortable moving on to the next stage of school, then, then you'll probably have a little more success. And, and, and we talked last time, you, you guys trying to really enhance those graduation rates. So this is probably just one of those programs to help do that. This is another one of our programs and efforts that we're taking to make sure that our Aboriginal students have the same uh, chances of graduating as any other student in our district. So again, trying to uh, ease some of those inequities and to give them a level playing field. Awesome. Uh, that's pretty much all the time we have. Kathleen, anything else you want to highlight before I let you go here? I just wanted to um, let people know that uh, that nice little surplus that we have of $1.5 million is probably going to be spent on portables next year. So uh, again, dealing with that uh, increased enrollment and uh, increased, increased need for more capital investment in our district. Awesome. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for coming in. Always appreciate your time and all the hard work that you and your board have put in over the last uh, three weeks to get everything kind of running smoothly again. 
still getting there, but it looks like we're getting pretty close. So thanks again. Great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That was Kathleen Carpug, SD73 board chair. Coming up after the break, Todd Stone is adding to his duties as a member of the opposition. I'll be speaking more with the Kamloops South MLA after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back here on Radio NL and thanks as always for tuning in to the Jeff Andreas Show. I always appreciate your ears listening. Now uh, I'm joined on the line by Kamloops South MLA, Todd Stone. Now Todd, you had the uh, the role of Municipal Affairs Critic, but now you'll be taking on the role of Housing Critic as well. Uh, these two portfolios have gone hand in hand for many over the years, so let's just start by talking about this specific addition to housing. I guess what are your thoughts on taking on this new role and, and what are you hoping to do with it? Well, uh, good morning, Jeff, and thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, yes, I, I'm very excited to uh, to take on uh, holding the John Horgan NDP government accountable for uh, expectations uh, that have been set on the housing front, both uh, with respect to supportive housing projects as well as uh, housing affordability generally. Uh, you know, this uh, this government promised uh, 114,000 uh, homes would uh, would be built um, under under an NDP government, and uh, uh, to this point, we've only uh, we, we, uh, the, the premier recently actually admitted that it's only about 2,300 government uh, units have actually opened under his government. So uh, at that pace, we're we're looking at about a 50-year time frame uh, for delivery on their on their 114,000 homes. Uh, we also know that uh, uh, the the hallmark commitment. Of, of the NDP in the last election was to make life more affordable uh, for British Columbians, uh, particularly as related to housing. And uh, you know, overall, uh, housing is about five percent more expensive. Uh, you know, after three years, two and a half three years of this NDP government, so lots to work with. Uh, it's an important uh, file, uh, an important issue for British Columbians in Kamloops as much as Vancouver and and, and all other points in this province. So I'm excited to uh, to uh, to bring um, a, a sharper focus uh, to uh, the housing uh, file uh, from a official opposition perspective. Now, when you're talking housing affordability specifically. Um there's obviously a number of issues that could potentially impact, whether it be, you know, uh, afford, uh, foreign buyers or the speculation tax. I guess those two go hand in hand. Um, I mean, what specific issues do you see as things that are having the biggest impact on the general population's ability to afford a home? And, and uh, you know, what, what would you like to see different at this point? Well, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about Vancouver for one moment. Uh, it's a very, very different reality in terms of what's happening down here versus uh, uh, Kamloops and, and other parts of the province. Uh, you know, in, in the Lower Mainland, uh, upwards of six hundred thousand uh, dollars of, of the total cost of, of a new unit of housing here, on average. Six hundred thousand uh, dollars is uh, representative of the, of the taxes and the fees that that are that are added to uh, to uh, a home down here. Um, it, it's obviously not nearly as dramatic uh, in markets like Kamloops and Kelowna. But what we have seen uh, over the over the past uh, two and a half three years under the NDP is a piling on of uh, a significant amount of additional tax, uh, all all in an effort to try and tamp down on on, on housing demand. Uh, what's actually happened is, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that hasn't actually impacted the, the the price of homes, especially for the for the vast majority of British Columbians, uh, uh, in, you know, in the quote unquote middle middle class. 
and uh, we, we've seen property uh, transfer tax revenues uh, uh, come in significantly lower by you know, $800 million and change lower than what was projected by the NDP government because of all of these taxes. Um, you know, $822 million of lost revenue, uh, you know, could have built uh, about 8,000 more units of, of, of housing. Um, uh, so these are missed opportunities and uh, housing starts are now down. Uh, we're, uh, we're seeing uh, developments, uh, uh, projects uh, in communities across the province being cancelled or, or significantly delayed or scaled back. Uh, that uh, is going to continue to constrain supply, and, and ultimately, uh, uh, most economists are now saying that's going to drive prices uh, further, further higher. Uh, so, lots of uh, lots of uh, uh, work to do here to to really hold the government accountable for uh, for, for what is a, I think a basket of failed uh, strategies on the housing front. Uh, here with Kamloops MLA Todd Stone. So uh, obviously, you talk a lot of, a lot about uh, you know what the NDP has done wrong. So if the Liberals were in power today, what would you do? Uh, and, you know to to make sure that these issues that you're bringing up are are not issues. Like what what would the Liberals do differently that uh, you know isn't being done now? Well, first on the on the supportive housing side, uh, the, the greatest uh, flaw in in the NDP's plan, uh, uh, which which uh, um, you know, in addition to the fact that they're building far fewer fewer units of, of housing than they said they were going to, um, is the fact that they're not actually uh, truly stepping up with the supports, uh, the wraparound supports that are needed. Uh, uh, you can't just take people, um, uh, you know, off the streets and stick them in uh, in, in units of housing and and, uh, and and call it a day. You need to make sure that those mental health and and other supports are there for folks. Um, uh, otherwise, you're just warehousing people. So that's uh, that's a, an area that we're going to focus a lot of uh, time and attention on on talking about uh, moving forward on the housing affordability side. Uh, it's all the, it's all these taxes, uh, the the piling on of of taxes, whether it's the speculation tax or the school tax or or um, uh, you know any. Any, any myriad of other other taxes that the province has layered on, not to mention uh, the delays in, in uh, permitting that, that we continue to see, not so much in Kamloops, but certainly in, in Metro Vancouver, uh, the delays and the fees that are piled on at the local level. Uh, this is all uh, serving to constrict uh, the, 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 uh, the onboarding of more supply of, of, of housing. Uh, if you don't uh, add that supply, uh, you're not going to see prices come down uh, at all. Uh, we, we, we grow that we see the population in British Columbia grow by about 50 to 60,000 people every single year. Uh, so we can't uh, we, we can't um, address that growth uh, by by building fewer units of, of housing, which is uh, I, uh, I fear is is a, is a pattern uh, a trend that's beginning to develop in, in a lot of communities around the province. Uh, well, well, Todd, I'm sure we could continue this conversation for quite some time, but unfortunately we have uh, wrapped up our uh, allotted time slot here. So thank you so much for coming on the program today. I always appreciate talking to you, and uh, we'll do it again in the future. You bet, Jeff. Uh, there'll be a lot more to talk about in the months ahead. We'll, well, I'm we'll sure. Talk to you then. Sounds good. Thanks. That was Kamloops Thompson, MLA Todd Stone, and Municipal Affairs, and now also housing critic for the Liberal government, or the, the opposition Liberals. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about October 1st, new trucking regulations that are coming into effect. So we'll be having the BC Truckers Association president on after this. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Radio NL. Appreciate you having here having you here with me today as always. 
New fines are going into effect for B.C. truckers who don't carry and use chains when necessary for highway travel during the winter season. Drivers will now be fined $196 for not carrying chains when and where required and $598 for not installing chains during mandatory chain-ups. Here to speak on the issue is B.C. Truckers Association President Dave Earl. Dave, thanks so much for joining me here today. Well, thanks for having me. So the B.C. government said the stricter fines support the enhanced chain-up regulations implemented last November to improve safety and reliability of B.C. highways during winter conditions. I guess, how does the association feel about all of this? I mean, are you happy to see some rules become a little more stringent in the name of safety or, or disappointed that, uh, you know, the fines are being increased? No, I'm happy that they're being, uh, the fines are increasing and also happy on, on the broader actions government's taken, particularly uh, on the Coquihalla. Um, I mean, drivers that drive up that route now will see a very large chain-up area at the bottom of the Box, of Box Canyon. Um, you know, that type of facility really supports drivers uh, in getting out of their vehicles and putting chains on in a safe location, not pulled over the side of a highway in a really congested location. So we're pleased with increased enforcement. We're pleased with the increased fines, and we're really pleased with the increased support. Um, do you think this will really change driver behaviors, or is this something you believe drivers will, were already aware of and, and this isn't going to have much of an impact other than the ones who are just going to have to pay a bigger fine because they weren't paying attention and that's probably not going to change anything, uh, you know, just because the fines are bigger isn't going to impact their behaviors? Or, or do you really think that, you know, the increase in fines will raise awareness to the issue and, and drivers will be a little more careful? Well, a tough call. You know, and one of the things that you look at is uh, you know, the, the vast majority of drivers are safe and compliant and take care. Uh, but all it takes is one or two, of course, and the entire route gets clogged up. Um, you know, so those, the question is, is, is this going to reach those one or two? Um, time's going to tell. I don't know that there's a lot of, uh, of people, certainly, who were sitting back uh, and looking and, and doing a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, but 600 bucks for not chaining up, that's going to get your attention, and I doubt you're going to do it twice. Fair enough. Um, and in addition to the fines, too, the chain-up rules are now going to affect more vehicles. Uh, previous regs only required vehicles over 27,000 kilograms to carry and use traction devices uh, with only one wheel needing chains during winter conditions. Uh, but the new rules say that this will now be required for all commercial vehicles over 5,000 kilograms. So with this being, you know, way more all-encompassing, uh, what does that do to your members? I mean, uh, does that have a big concern about the fact that, you know, it obviously is going to impact a lot more people who are driving trucks now? Uh, you know, not really, because it, it will impact more, but our members are in favor of it simply because it makes sure that the roadway is going to stay open and that people operating on it are operating safely. Um, the vehicles under, you know, the, the 11,794 kilogram or the, you know, the 12 ton range, if you will, um, do have options. They're, they're not necessarily into the steel chains. I mean, they can use um, steel chains or they can use cable chains. Uh, they can use auto socks. They can use a whole bunch of different things. Uh, you know, to address those issues. They've got more options than the heavy vehicles do. Uh, and we looked at it and said, you know, this is a good process because we just simply cannot have that highway blocked. Um, do you know if this is something that's going to be, you know, really enforced right off the top come, you know, next, what is it, Tuesday, October 1st? Um, you know, are drivers going to be seeing a barrage of fines as a result of this, or is there going to be at least a bit of an education period at all? Do you have any idea what that's going to look like in terms of enforcement right now? Well, the education period actually began last year. Uh, these regulations were put in place in terms of what you have to have, what equipment and everything else were put in place last December. Uh, it took a little while to get the fines uh, to go through a process to make sure they were set uh, where the government needs to set them. Uh, so there's been education ongoing in the industry for the better part of a year now. Um, I wouldn't expect that uh, CVSC is going to soft pedal this very much. 
um, particularly around the mandatory chain-up requirements. I mean, if you're going to choose to blow by a sign uh, with a couple of flashing yellow lights, well, you know, you kind of get what you get. Uh, here with BC Trucking Association President Dave Earle. Um, what are the reasonings behind why people wouldn't be chaining up? I mean, uh, you had talked about that the vast, vast majority of drivers are already compliant, and this isn't going to have necessarily much of an impact on them. But the ones who do obviously not obey the rules, and, and you know, this may not change the fact that fines are higher, may not change their behaviors. Um, what, what kind of reasonings would they have for not you know, wanting to chain up or just simply not do following the practice? Is there any particular reasons that you can point out why this might not be happening already? Yep, you bet. It is an ugly job to do. Um, this is not like getting out and throwing some uh, cable chains on your car tire when it's a little bit snowy. Putting chains on a heavy commercial vehicle is a significant piece of work. Uh, it's always done, always done in adverse weather conditions because quite simply, if it wasn't adverse weather, you wouldn't need to put them on. Uh, so again, it's really understanding that this is a significant piece of work. And when you're sitting uh, in a cab, you're warm, you're doing well, you're making good time, you're thinking this is no problem. Why do I have to stop and spend 35, 40 minutes uh, chaining up my vehicle in the freezing cold? Um, one of the things that we're doing is on October 1st, we're actually hosting a winter maintenance conference where we're having uh, representatives from government come and speak to our members about the changes to highway maintenance standards, uh, these new regulations. Regulations. Uh, and for the public, we're also going to have a bit of a demonstration on what it takes to put these chains on. Um, it's a significant piece of work. Yeah, I, I also got a note here from my producer here saying that, um, you know, there's oftentimes a lot of people that don't necessarily know how to properly chain ups. And that's obviously something you were just talking about there with your, your safety conference that you're going to be making sure that people do know exactly what they are doing and, and how the process works to make sure they're doing it properly. Uh, does it surprise you at all that a number of people don't know how to do this practice properly? Uh, no, and, and the reason why, this is another thing that we're working on with government, we're making good progress on, is, is looking at mandatory entry-level training uh, for commercial drivers. So when drivers do go through training, right now, um, it's common practice for drivers to watch a video in terms of how to put these things on. Um, the expectation and one of the things we're looking for in mandatory entry-level training is that drivers will actually have to, yes, get out, put them on in the yard. So they actually have a little bit of experience uh, putting these traction control devices on before they get on the road. Uh, it seems pretty surprising that that wouldn't be the case already. I mean, I, I can uh, watch a lot of videos, but that doesn't necessarily teach me how to do it unless I do it myself. I mean, wh why isn't that part of the process already? And, and obviously you're pushing for it, so that's important. But, uh, I mean, is there a particular reason why this isn't mandatory already? Is it just a matter of time and resources, or, or what's the what's the purpose? That simply because we don't have anything that's mandatory for training in this province yet. Um, we're not unique. I mean, this has been an issue that, uh, you know, has been ongoing for probably a decade or two. Um, but we've been pushing for this, and we've seen it in other provinces. Uh, but what's interesting is other provinces don't have this particular component because, truthfully, if you're operating uh, a vehicle in the, in the greater Toronto area or in Saskatchewan, this isn't a huge issue for you. Um, and so one of the things when we're looking at doing this and building it into our training in BC, uh, we have to be realistic and recognize that uh, your license, Jeff, allows you to drive from here to Florida. Well, so does a commercial vehicle operator's mm -hmm. license. Uh, and it's not implausible that somebody from Texas, the very first time they see a mountain, is going to be uh, on the snowshed hill in the middle of a snowstorm. So um, as much as we can do and we're going to continue to do, uh, there's going to be a continuing effort of enforcement uh, and education. Um, I was also going to ask, too, yeah, you mentioned that it's probably not... Um 
you know, something that people are necessarily practicing when they are in places like, you know, Ontario and Quebec, where the roads are quite a bit different than they are here in BC, I guess. Uh, you know, when people are maybe taking on routes they're not familiar with and coming out to places like Alberta and BC, is it just sort of, you know, make sure you know the rules and, you know, you're not going to get away with anything just because you're maybe a little bit uh, oblivious to what you're supposed to know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're supposed to do route planning. You're supposed to understand the local conditions and environment, make sure your equipment's in good operating condition, and make sure you have equipment to deal with what you're going to get into. Um, frankly, there's no excuse, especially, again, when you're going past the you know, mandatory chain-up sign. Um, you know, there's just no excuse for it. Um, having said all that, uh, the reality is, is we're always going to have people who don't know, even though they should. And the question becomes, what do we do with them? Um, frankly, what we do with them is make sure they have the equipment that's installed properly before they go up the hill. So if that means they have to wait, if that means they have to turn around, if that means they have to find another route, so be it. Um, they simply have to have the equipment and have it installed properly before they go up that route. Uh, well, Dave, that pretty much wraps up our time here, but uh, obviously this is an important piece of uh, you know legislation or change in regulations for you guys if you want to see an improvement in safety. Uh, we obviously don't want to see uh, highways closing and, and major accidents and major tragedies coming up this winter. So uh, appreciate your time and uh, you know appreciate your input here on this issue. Jeff, thanks for having me. Awesome. That was BC Truckers Association President Dave Earl talking about new chain-up regulations that are set to go into effect on October 1st, which is exactly one week from today. Coming up after the break, snakes are getting ready for the winter, and I'll be talking more about that with TRU Natural Resources Professor Carl Larson after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back in, and thanks so much for joining me on this lovely Tuesday here in Kamloops. With summer now officially in the rearview mirror, many animals are getting ready to hibernate for the winter, and that includes snakes. I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday play. Is that an issue here in Kamloops? Well, here to talk about these cold-blooded creatures is Carl Larson with the TRU Natural Resources Department. Carl, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, no problem. So a lot of people, you know, are out hiking and cycling and, and just being outdoors, and that doesn't stop just because the weather's a bit cooler. So, uh, I mean, when it comes to snakes, is there anything in particular that people should be worried about right now? Is there, a, you know, an issue when it comes to them looking for their dens or anything like that? No, most of them know where they're going. They're um, probably heading further away from people at this time of the year. Um, the, the one we know the most about is rattlesnakes, and they've, they've got traditional places where they hang out for the winter and they'll be heading more or less out of the lower parts of the river valley and higher up. Um, some of the others um, might just have a hole in the ground. I know I've got some garter snakes hibernate in my backyard just in between rocks and that. Um, but I'd say we're probably in the very last, the last stretch here. Um, you know, one, two more weeks and then it'll be more or less over. Um, how, how common is, is, is it for uh, snake sightings in this part of the BC? Uh, well, it, it ranges incredibly. I would say for garter snakes, it's pretty easy. You can, you know, in the summer especially, head down to the river valleys and things like that. And you'll, you know, it, it, you're still not guaranteed, but it's not unusual. And then as you get to some of the other more rare ones or the ones that stay further away from town, um, it gets a little bit harder to find. You know, yeah. they're, they're not... 
you're not tripping over them, that's for sure. <laughs> so when we're talking about them looking for places to, to set up shop for right. the winter, I guess, do they change their behaviors at all as a result of that? I mean, can they get more defensive because they're looking for a, for a home or anything like that? No, I, I guess, again, the one we know the most about, because myself and my students have done a lot of work and some mm -hmm. other people, is rattlesnakes. And so they have... Um, traditional spots so they're they have high we call it fidelity they will go back to the same place year after year after year uh, so that's you know they're they're starting to head that direction right now the other snakes around here like the gopher snake the racer um, we know less about where they hibernate but we do know they may just go down a hole anywhere in a field and get through the winter that way so at this time of the year, they're, they're, if they're still moving around, they might be making one last little push to try and get a meal, but it's going to be over pretty quick here. Okay, so it's not really uh, something that hikers and bikers really need to be too cautious about at this time. No, I wouldn't say so. Not more so than any other time of the year, and in probably two weeks, it's not, a, not an issue at all. All right, so there you go. Two more weeks for people to, yeah. if they're afraid of snakes, they can count down yeah, those next Yeah, you can relax days. and yeah. you got a few months off. Perfect. Um, and I understand there's a few snakes here that are sort of not necessarily endangered, but are maybe right. becoming a little less um, frequent visitors or yeah. harder to see. I guess, can you just, I understand the Western Rattlesnake is one of those as well, right? right? Yeah, so the Western Rattlesnake um, and a couple others are considered threatened. So that's their status, and, and which means they're definitely in danger and their numbers have dropped considerably. And you just got to look in Kamloops here. Like we, I, I don't believe there's any rattlesnakes left on the south side of the rivers. I think they've just been eliminated there through time. Uh, so and that sort of uh, effect is seen all over their range in the southern part of the province. Gopher snakes, racers, also threaten, just getting harder and harder to find them. And then you can go to the night snake, which is only found right around the Soyuz and in Canada, and they're considered endangered. And then we've got, you know, two or three other snakes as well that are less threatened. I mean, from from a steak enthusiast like yourself, I guess, right. how, how concerning is it that these guys are slowly disappearing here? Oh, well, you know, when I was a kid, none of them were considered threatened. So this is all, you know, in the last few decades, and a lot has to do with the fact they're, they're only found, at least most of these species we've talked about here, are only found in the southern interior in these dry or hot valleys. So there's not a lot of places for them to begin with. And then where do people like to live? in the southern, drier, hotter valleys. So we've got two things working against us. Roads are a big thing. Like we're finding more and more roads are really taking their toll on these animals. And people just don't even notice that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, here with uh, Carl Larson from the TRU Natural Resources Department. So, I mean, this is just a matter of humans, I guess, moving into their territory. Right. Pretty much. And, uh, you know, we keep you know, moving, uh, creating transport corridors, roads and things like that. So we're just slowly whittling away. And then, to you know, I guess what compounds that is the fact we are at the northern limit for many of these animals. So rattlers, racers, gopher snakes, racers, or sorry, the night snake, they're all occurring right here at their northernmost location. So they, there's something naturally stopping them from going further right. north. And then you throw on top of that the people factor. It's a double whammy.
Is there anything that, that we as humans can do to help? I mean, I've, we've already built here, so right. we can't really take the construction away. No. So is there anything we can do? Tolerance. Uh, if you live on the, you know, the fringes of the city, don't make your, if you don't want snakes around, don't make your, your backyard snake friendly. Keep it clear of things. Um, remove boards, rocks, that sort of thing. Uh, and if you're, you know, out and about, I, I saw an excellent message or T-shirt the other day. It said, uh, "A visible snake is not a dangerous snake," which means if you can see it, it's not going to hurt you, makes sense. right? It's the ones that you can't see. So that's where removing things like boards and that from mm -hmm. your backyard. Um, when it comes to some of these snakes that you've mentioned, I guess uh, you know I don't really hear too much about concerns when it comes to things like like venomous snakes or people right. being really, um, you know, at risk of any sort of significant injury when it comes to these guys. Is there anything in particular or any one snake in this area that might pose a bigger risk to people? No, I mean, the, the rattlesnake's the only venomous snake we have in, in Western Canada. There's a couple different kinds, but around here, there's just the Western rattlesnake. And, you know, going back to what I said, a visible snake is not a dangerous mm -hmm. snake. They're, they're not going to pursue people. So if you're conscious of where you are, um, and don't do perhaps a little more silly things like walking in sandals in rattlesnake habitat, um, running in rattlesnake, taking your dogs off leash in rattlesnake habitat. Those are the things that usually precipitate a bite or something like that. So. And if, if a rattlesnake bites, I guess, what is there a big concern or is that uh, uh, something you can just get some quick well, medical attention for? It, it's serious, but the the main response is just get to the hospital as soon as you can. There's Don't try any you know, old school first aid <laughs> things or doing this or doing that. Just get yourself to the hospital. The hospital here stocks anti-venom. You're probably going to be okay. You can't just get your hiking partner to, to suck it out? No, no, that those sorts of uh, stories are gone, right? And there's all kinds of crazy things like make little incisions and put a suction cup on it, a tourniquet and ice. Just don't do any of that. Just get to the hospital. All right, that's probably good advice. Leave yeah. it to the experts, eh? Yeah. Um, I guess uh, one of the snakes that I guess you had mentioned when we were talking about the one near Soyuz, the uh, the night snake, that one right. is a little bit more endangered, correct? Yes, and you know the, it's one of those sort of political biological things because they have a huge range in the states, but they just make it into Canada within near the Soyuz U.S. border, and so they don't have a big range. They're not super abundant, and so they're classified as endangered. Um, I've never seen one, but I've had some of my students who are out working every day for two years pop, bounce into one mm -hmm. on a trail. Um, they're a small little snake, perfectly harmless. Um, and again, they're at their northern limits, so they just have a, a very limited natural range. So the same, same deal with them too? It's just a matter of uh, not enough natural habitat anymore? Yeah, well, I don't think... Um, it, I think for them it's more because there's something in the environment that's limiting and whether that's temperature or habitat or something and um, they've never really had a big range in Canada so it's not like their range has been pushed back by people right. it's never been big to begin with however um, you know climate change is happening and there's more people so the future is a lot more difficult to predict mm -hmm. what's going to happen to those little guys Perfect. Well, uh, yeah. hopefully we can, I mean, I guess that's an issue for a lot of species, not just right. one particular species. Yeah, so. that's a whole other discussion. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. we won't get into that one right now. Right. Um, I think that's pretty much it, Carl. Anything else you want to throw sure. on the table while we're here? Nope, just, uh, you know, I'm quite pleased. I've seen over the last uh, 15, 20 years a real 
overall change in the attitude towards snakes um, and some other animals that were, you know, like badgers that were less liked. And so it's getting better. It's getting better. We just got to keep working on it. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming Good. in. And, no uh, problem. Yeah. If you don't want to get bit by a rattlesnake, well, make sure you're wearing shoes. And, yes, uh, that's right. Keep your head up. <laughs> keep your head up. There right. you go. Well, that was uh, Carl Larson with the TRU Natural Resources Department. Thanks again for coming in. Great. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. And if you missed something, of course, everything is posted to RadioNL.com slash podcast. And you can also find full-length episodes on a number of podcast platforms. So thanks again to all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. And we'll be back here tomorrow morning starting at 9 o'clock.